Welcome to the Table Leadership Podcast, where everyone is invited to pull up a seat, and all leaders have a voice to contribute to the conversation. We're glad you could join us today. And now, your host, Sian Edgerton. Freezing is not even the right word, because freezing is like 32 degrees Fahrenheit, and it's like four degrees. Is it really <laughs> already? Yep. Oh yep. my goodness. Yeah. So you I couldn't, what do you do to stay warm? Yeah. I, I couldn't handle it. I couldn't like all the, all the power in the world to you people that put up with the polar vortex and all that craziness. You know, it makes us more hardy and perseverant. Right. So exactly. You know, it, it impacts your leadership because it's like, well, nothing can get as bad as your eyeballs freezing open. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like the perspective. At least you've got good perspective on it. So um, for everybody listening that doesn't know you yet, uh, just introduce yourself real quick. Tell us, you know, who you are and what you do. And obviously now we know where you're from. Um, yep. But yeah, anything that you think might be relevant. Yeah, um, I, I'm kind of a maverick. I don't like getting boxed in too much. So um, it it sounds a little bit like I do like a laundry list of things, but think more of like, I just don't like having to only do one thing. So (laughs) that's why. So, um, I'm, my primary role is as a lead pastor of a church called Mill City Church here in Minneapolis, which is a, um, nickname for Minneapolis is the Mill City. And so we named our church after Minneapolis as a part of the church, the, the plant launch team, um, as a planting pastor in 2008. So we're coming in on our 11th year, ending our 11th year here, which is nuts. I was obviously 12 years old when we started. So, (laughs) (laughs) um, and you know, I also teach at Bethel seminary here in St. Paul. So Minneapolis, St. Paul are often called the twin cities because they're next to each other, but they're really not the same, but they're very close to each other. So, uh, my office in Minneapolis is only about 15 or 10 minutes from my office in St. Paul where I teach at the seminary, which is, you know, pastor school, training pastors. I, I primarily teach biblical communication and preaching at Bethel, um, but I'm involved there in other ways too. And then I um, am an author, which we'll talk a little bit today. I, I'm, yes. That's my newest kind of title is author or writer. Like, like this, I was typing something on a plane and a woman was like, are you a writer? And I was like, I am. <laughs> it's like a new thing. But I've, I've always written a lot, but not in a way that felt kind of like my primary, like an actual thing now. So it is. And I also do some leadership coaching and podcasting. So um, I'm co-owner of Lead Stories Media, which is a leadership resource company that my friend Joe Saxton and I own. And we resource people primarily through podcasts, um, which we have a few different ones, including the Stay Curious podcast after my book, but also the Lead Stories podcast. And then... Um, We've got a lot of resources and things for people there on our website um, where we have just, yeah, resourcing leaders. And I'm also a wife of a really strange human being named JD and our little three-legged dog, Chaco. (laughs) Three-legged? He's only got three legs. Yes. He, uh, he, he broke one beyond repair and they said dogs only need three. And not just like one person said that, like every vet said that they were like, they don't need three. Anyway, my husband's a filmmaker, and so he thinks it's really ironic and hilarious that he's got a dog that's a tripod. Oh my gosh. 
That's hilarious. <laughs> so with all of these roles, and I know I can't ask you like which one is your favorite, because that's like asking a parent which child is your favorite, it's and they'll tell really you I love good. them all equally, but it's not true. Every parent has yeah. a favorite, but we won't get into that. Um, yeah, I don't have a so I'm not really sure. <laughs> with with all of the roles, I will just say overall, what is it that, because you've obviously created a life that really uh, works for you, works for your personality, works for your gifting. And so overall, with all of these different roles, what is it that is the most fulfilling for you in the work that you do? Yeah, being a local church pastor is my ride or die. Like I, I hope that I get to do that. You know, God got to lead however God wants to lead. But I hope that I'm leading in a local church setting, you know, indefinitely. And um, it just, to me, you know, being a pastor in this space is what fuels all the other spaces that I get to, to be a pastor. You know, I, I think of myself as a professor for my students, but I'm also a pastor and so mm -hmm. the stuff that comes up and, um, but the, the people who I get to serve here in my part of the city and their lives and their stories and their leadership development is like paramount, you know? And so, um, I, I know that God can shift that, but to me, it just feels like for the last 11 years, it's just always been like the, the trunk of the tree is these people and the other kind of branches that have come off of that have been really fun. But it's also been really cool to see how, you know, my book and um, <clears throat> the resources that I produce as a, as a leadership development coach and stuff, um, the ways that I'm able to use those for my community is really awesome too. So um, they've definitely benefited from that. And they've also benefited from not having all of my apastolic energy coming at them. Yeah. <laughs> Just spread it out, diffuse it a yeah, little bit. They're like, you know what? You go run some of that off and come back like, like a kid, like you send like a kid in the other room to just run circles around like yes. a table or something. It's yes. like that's the apostolic space that I need to be in so that when I come back, I can be like, okay, so I'm listening and reflecting back what you're saying. And thinking about you thoughtfully and how I can preach this sermon. And but I, you know, I love preaching. I preach, um, the primary communicator at my church too. And, um, but I, but I see that as, you know, loving them and equipping them, um, primarily and, uh, just what a gift it is to do that. I'm super grateful. Yeah. And I think something that you just said, and I know we have other conversations to get into, but what you just said, I think was really critical. Just the self-awareness that you have. You mentioned being apostolic, uh, yeah. which part of the fivefold gifting, obviously in, yeah. you know, worldly layman terms, kind of the equivalent of like an entrepreneur. It's someone who is a starter, you know, lots of ideas, things like that. And I think what you said, the self-awareness piece is so critical that we do with our gifting, it carries this particular type of energy. And so for the entrepreneur, for the apostle who has that type of energy, it's actually beneficial, you would say, to, to have a couple different projects going because we do need yeah. to burn some of that energy so that it's not all focused and directed perhaps on one particular team or person, because that can be really overwhelming. Can you talk just a little bit about that? Because I'm thinking what you just said, for someone who's just newly discovering their apostolic or entrepreneurial gifting, I think that could be really critical, that piece of self-awareness and how is that uh, received by your team and why is it kind of good and healthy to maybe have your hands in a couple different cookie jars? Yeah, I think it's something to handle with care, like no question, mm -hmm. because um, anybody who is entrepreneurial or apostolic, I think we know what our pitfalls are, like starting things you don't finish, making yep. promises you can't deliver on, mm -hmm. um, getting spread too thin, burnout, et cetera. Um, but uh, yes, for me, the growth in the self-awareness is, um, I'll try to think of it like an, a specific example. So 
my, my community is trying to figure out how to support the local school that we worship in. And if you've ever worked with the school district, um, they're just terribly slow. And, and they, I guarantee you, are not as slow as the Minneapolis public schools. <laughs> like, it's just insane. <laughs> um, no, probably not in other big cities. But a lot of big cities actually split their districts up more. And in Minneapolis, like, all the schools in Minneapolis proper are under one big district. And it's just a lot. So, like, it is like molasses to make things happen. And so in my local community, I can like get my community excited about how we might support the school. So for instance, we were like, hey, what if we install the sound system for these kids? Because we heard that during their, their school assemblies, they were just having somebody yell because they don't have a speaker or microphone and we have to bring all portable stuff. We're like, well, what if we installed some permanent stuff, you know, and then we could use it, but then we just leave it for them all week long. Well, that first came up two years ago and uh, then about nine months ago, I said to my community, I said, well, we got a bid for how long, how much it's going to cost, like $30,000, because it's not a small room. And so we raised that money pretty fast, like two months, we paid for the thing, we sent it to Minneapolis Public, Minneapolis Public Schools nine months ago. And now here we are. And I think they're going to install it in January 2020, maybe. <laughs> and, you know, like, that, that's fine. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's not it's not too late to do something permanent, but if that was the, the rate of change that I had experienced in my almost every day, I just don't think I would, I would just get so impatient and it would be really hard. And while I'm definitely an advocate for growing in my patience, like, don't get me wrong. I think that God made me with that energy to put in other places. And so I've been able to be like, you know what, people listen, this is how we're working with other communities. We love the public schools. And so They've got some other bigger fish to fry than like a little sound system in an elementary school. So I think like we can be patient, but that's only because since in the last two years, while that happened, like <laughs> I got to launch, you know, <laughs> a book, two podcasts and, you know, had multiple coaching groups and helped with some different events and got the chance to speak at things around the country. And, you know, and, and you can fill in the amount of things I've had to wait like molasses for in the church over the last few years. And that's just, yep. I think it's, you know, it's good you don't do some of those things quickly. And so how can I get to do some things that are designed to go quickly while I can be patient in the other space? I just, it really helps. It really helps me. And it, and it allows me to be in a space where certainly not all my leaders are apostolically gifted. Thank goodness. Mm -hmm. They represent the whole fivefold. And so to be able to be patient with the shepherds, for instance, you know, that is hard for me. And so I sit down and listen to them and talk through stuff and, you know, we can't jump to things. And I just want to be like, what? but they're, they teach me a ton and it's really healthy for me to stick in it with them. So that's like an example of, right. you know, what the difference is and how I get to keep things more fast paced on one side and the other side, I have more patience for the slow work. Yeah, I think that's great. I think there's a lot of wisdom in what you just said and somebody's really going to benefit from it. So thanks for letting me go into left field, which tends yeah. to happen a lot because ADD. So, you know, whatever. I like, um, I like left Love field's a good place to be. Um, so, okay, so what I really wanted to start with, now that we're kind of officially starting after the preview of, of rabbit trails that I'm off on, um, the first question that I want to ask that I ask everybody is because this is it's the table leadership, right? And so if we were not virtual right now, if we were actually gathering a group of leaders around a table and we were just doing investment and discipleship and leadership development, pouring into them, what would you be feeding us? What is like the one, either your favorite meal or um, something that you make better than anybody else? What would literally be on the table oh, if we gathered together? Oh, yeah. 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 So I don't cook. So I would bring like Chipotle. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. 
So yeah, I, um, I, or maybe like a charcuterie board or something where I can just purchase it all from Trader Joe's and like open the packages and put on some wood. Like I, um, I, I think the best leaders don't only have a to-do list, but also have a to-don't list and cooking in all of its forms is on my to-don't list. I don't like it. I don't think it's necessary. People are like, how is it not necessary? I'd be like, you'd be surprised how, how often, even without like things like Chipotle, you can figure out how to eat things that don't have to actually be cooked. (laughs) I mean, I'm not above microwaving, but I'm just saying or warming something up. But um, fortunately, my husband cooks, but I've only known him for a couple of years. So it's been, uh, I I would be like, hey, people like, you know what, fill this form out online and we'll get you exactly what you want from Chipotle. I feel like Chipotle is a love language. And, um, you know, I know you like tacos. So I do. I do. Mm-hmm. Taco Tuesday is a thing. But then, see, you just spoke my other love language, charcuterie boards. Joe knows yeah. my affinity for charcuterie. Mm-hmm. A, a whole just tray of meat and cheese will make me happy for days. So, My husband and I are going to go to a charcuterie board um, creation like class tomorrow. That's he, a thing? He, yeah, I guess. Like He found that because he knew I would like that. Because I would not want to go to a cooking class. Obviously. Right? So I would what? Do, they just I kind would of go teach you how like, to like... If I got a cooking class, if I got a cooking class, that would be me picking out a date for him, you know, but for him <laughs> picking out a charcuterie board plate. Yeah. This, this, um, this restaurant down the street from, from our house, um, newer restaurant and they have what they call the abundance board. And it's like one of their most popular, you know, items that people buy to eat. So they're like doing an abundance board training and we get to, of course, get to eat things the whole time. Right. So, and yeah. figure out like what, how to pair things, how to put things together. Okay. I feel yeah. like this is um, going to be a, a sermon illustration just waiting to happen. Yeah, totally. totally. And you're so, going to want to come to Minneapolis just to, I'll I take wanna, you there and you come. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well down um, in the summer, preferably. Yeah. Not yeah. during any given winter vortex. Yeah. Not the winter. That would be great. So, okay. Now not talking food, obviously, but talking leadership. Um, what is it that you feel like, you, and obviously for everybody, there's a lot of different things. Uh, so pick, you know, kind of one, but what is it that you bring to the leadership table? I think the thing I bring the most is, um, being action oriented. So I, or like being a practical theologian, I feel very, very grateful for the people who are thought leaders who do the deep, deep work and the deep dives to give us brilliant theology, to give us brilliant leadership theory, to give us brilliant psycho. I mean, I'm really into psychology and like how that intersects, intersects with our faith, um, spiritual formation theories, all that kind of stuff. I love that. I'm so grateful these people exist, but it's pretty difficult for me to take in any information that I cannot see how it could be applied. And so when I come to a table, um, I'm able to, you know, the theme so far, be patient and listen to the many ideas. Um, and, uh, I think of it as like, I, I love being with idea people because I think of it as they're throwing these ideas up in the air, metaphorically speaking. And a lot of idea people, they're not at all thinking they want to do all of them, of course. And so I'm like, great, let's throw them out there. And then I like, metaphorically, I'm like looking at all of them. And then I will grab one of them out of the sky and pull it down on the table and be like, all right, let's do this one. (laughs) And then, you know, ideas can continue on, but at least we, the ideas get funneled towards like a specific action. So yesterday I was working with one of the other pastors in my church planting network. And he was like, um, our newest church plant pastor. And he was like, you know, I know I've got a lot going on with the church plant, but I just can't shake this idea of doing something for entrepreneurs because here we are planting churches, but we've got all these entrepreneurs around us who have joined our church or interested in churches that are starting because they like startups. And so we had this conversation and then I said, okay, cool. Like, 
what we'll, we'll just do this. We'll just pick a Saturday and we'll just do like a gathering at the brewery across the street. And we'll just call it like theology of startups and start inviting people. And he's like, yeah. And I was like, no, I'm serious. Like, let's just do that because how else are we going to try something? Like, just, just, just do it. So we'll just get some people together and, and the content will be easy. It'll, the hardest part will be figuring out what not to talk about and whose stories not to tell. And we'll just get a bunch of entrepreneurs and a bunch of church planters in a room and say like, God cares about this and let's talk about it. And yeah. that's it. Like see what happens. And all we need to do is find a spot and someone who can help us, you know, welcome people and then put it up on the internet and invite people. Like everyone's like, Oh no, there's so much things. It's like, no, we're not launching a business. We're just getting people together. And so I'm always like, put it down on paper, pick a time in the calendar. And I said to him, I said, if we get close to it and we haven't done any of that, then we didn't do it. But if we don't pick something like that and just put a stake in the ground, then we will sit here six or eight, 10 months from now with the same questions we have now. And I, I think if we did something like that, a lot of those questions would be answered. And the, the answer might be, don't do this anymore. You don't have time for this, or this wasn't interesting, or nobody has time for this. You know what I mean? Or it could be, wow, people are really interested in this, and now they made a whole bunch more relationships, and now we're going to try X, Y, or Z. Hmm. So that's the kind of thing like I'll play. Like, like I love hearing the ideas, and I love thinking about multiple strategies, but at the end of the day, if we don't leave with an action plan of at least the next step, I'm, I'm not so into strategic plans where we know the next 10 steps, but I'm like, let's just do the next one and see what happens. And Sometimes a strategic long-term plan emerges, but um, I appreciate the like leadership agility of being able to respond to things that, when you don't have a long-term plan um, so that you can listen to God's invitations along the way. So there's two groups of people in that then that I want to ask you to, to speak to, right? The group of people that are wired like you, um, who, to, who hear what you're saying and are like, yes, oh my gosh, that's me. Let's just do things. Let's move on it. Let's put that stake in the ground. Let's explore. Let's experiment. And if it works, we'll keep going. And if not, whatever, you know, no harm, no foul. Um, and, but obviously that also has to come with a lot of wisdom, a lot of discernment, a lot of hearing from yeah. the Lord. There's probably a lot of stakes uh, in the ground that probably shouldn't have been put there or that didn't end up going well. So for people who are wired like you, who have that energy, who are kind of just now starting out in that journey of discovering that and wanting to start putting some stakes in the ground, what is the wisdom or encouragement that you would give to them specifically, knowing that they are people wired like you? Um, I would say you really, um, well, I think that people like us, specifically in the church, feel misunderstood because it's not as commonly celebrated Mm -hmm. Um, as you know, when we talk about fivefold, the pastors and the teachers have been very celebrated in the local church and the prophets have been evangelists and, and apostles have been more celebrated in the parachurch mm -hmm. and, um, but still the, the value is to the shepherds and the teachers. And so I think it's easy to feel misunderstood and like people don't get it and they're just in our way type thing. But I would just really encourage people, like if you have the goal to understand first, to seek to understand before being understood that's actually going to lead to the most likely like chance that you're actually going to be understood. <laughs> like if you try to like, and you might not be understood when you try to start with understanding somebody else, but chances are, if you're trying to force them to understand you, it always starts. It's a better order of operations to say, okay, what can I understand about these shepherds and these teachers and what they value and what they care about? And, um, and also like what I just said, like, can I come to a spot where I genuinely think that if somebody wasn't spending most of their time in a room reading and thinking and writing, we would not be able to do the best ideas and the best things, or we wouldn't do them well or responsibly or have the best thinking um, around it. And I, I had, I've had to wrestle through that and just be someone who's like, wait a second, 
if I, I, I don't intend, I don't believe in my mind that different gifts are better than any others, but then why would I ever behave like that? And then how can I be shocked when someone behaves that way towards me and say, well, what really matters is that we care for people well and shepherd them. If I'm like, no, what really matters is that we are innovative. No, that, that's not real. There is not, being innovative is not more important than caring for people and caring for people is not more important than innovation because caring for people well means we keep moving the way that God's inviting us to and vice versa. We make yeah. sure we do that in a rate that's helpful and loving. That's yeah. it. They just, you have, you need it. So I would just encourage people like me to, to start with like a, what can I understand about these other people? Cause that's actually going to be more strategically advantageous. I think mm -hmm. that's good. So then the other group, and I know there's not, you know, just two different types of people, but if we're generalizing a little bit, um, what yeah. wisdom and encouragement would you give to the ones who are usually wired more like me? Cause I hear what you're saying and I'm like, yes, I want to be like that. Cause I'm wired apostolically, but I'm also an Enneagram one, which means I'm a perfectionist and I'm wired strategically. And it's sometimes really hard for me. And I have lots of ideas and things that I feel like I want to do, but you talk about, let's just put a date on the calendar, put a stake in the ground. And I immediately internally feel the anxiety from that right because I'm like wait no but we don't have it all figured out and there's so many unanswered questions and we've got to have a strategy and we need to know what our next steps are because why would you take one step without knowing what the next one is because then what if the next step is like jumping off a cliff and you haven't packed a parachute and you're not ready to jump off a cliff and you know my mind just goes like and yeah. so, and this has been a place where I have had to grow as a leader when I was leading a church, um, the senior pastor who was super apostolic, I would come to him and I would have this laundry list of questions and concerns and we need to have all these things figured out. And he did a good job of walking me through the process of being able to step without necessarily knowing the next step and to be able to jump and put some stakes in the ground. But that can be really difficult for someone who, who freaks out about that, who feels like, no, we need to know we're doing things right. We need to have the strategy in place. And on one hand, that can be good sometimes, right? We need that balance because oftentimes there's some wisdom that comes with strategy and thinking things through. But um, failure to start is a lot of times what I will find myself, you know, being held back by. So for people on that end of the spectrum, what, what wisdom and encouragement can you offer? Yeah. Um, I think of a few things. So there's the question around what the risk tolerance is when, when you're like doing, um, your retirement funds, they like do a study on like what your risk tolerance is <laughs> and yeah. they will put your investments in like groups that are maybe a little bit more volatile, but could have more long-term and or like results, you know? And so I think of people as like having a risk tolerance towards experimenting and what that looks like. Um, and I think that the thing that like your senior pastor previously needs to think about is when he's doing stuff like that for his church, that's gonna, that's gonna mean something for like the staff and the administrative people and the whatever, you know? And so when I think about like an experiment in my church, I think about it differently than if I, than the, the one I just described that I would do with my friend, because in my mind, I'm not doing that. Mill City Church is not doing that. Like me and my friend are going to do that. And we'll ask some people if they're willing to be on that team to help us. Mm -hmm. We'll need some team, but we won't need to impose that upon a previously existing team. To me, that is a very different thing to do because on a previously existing team, we've got people who are, you know, <laughs> like they are they're like well you don't understand that if you do this this and this like you're saying it's an experiment I'm seeing it as like something that just took my workload up and you don't even understand that like those kinds of things 
that's the kind of stuff people need to pay attention to. However, I also would say to those folks, and some people listening to this might be like, oh my gosh, I'm on a team like that and my boss doesn't get that. But I would also say to those people, if you think this person is worth following and you know leading the vision and charge of what you're doing, you wouldn't be on a team because that team may or may not exist if it wasn't for people like me. Like it probably wouldn't. Like no, there is no such thing as knowing, having answers to questions before you do something. We can make up some stuff to make people like you not feel so anxious. And you know, I do that sometimes, <laughs> but I can also say very true things like, Hey, you know what? It, it will genuinely be okay. If this doesn't have a lot of people at it, it will genuinely be okay. If, um, people have expectations after this for something and we don't do them or not, cause we are not going to tell them that we're not going to set them up for this expectation. It'll genuinely be okay if we get a couple months down and we decide, you know what, we're not going to do this. We're going to, we're going to postpone or we're not, we're going to say like, we, we thought this was a good idea, but we need to cancel it for now. We can just do that. It's okay. And you know, the other thing is to share, Hey, when I, when we decide to do this, this is what changes for my job. And I, I it's helpful for people to know what I need to do. But the thing is, is like, if someone wants to have a job where it's the same thing week in, week out, every single day and all that, you can find those jobs. Like those jobs exist, but those are going to be management spaces, not leadership spaces. So mm. management is good. We need that. We need consistency. And so I think for leaders like me, how do we set that environment for you all? But it helps for people to reflect that back to us and just say, hey, if this feels kind of like a lot, we just came off of this um, and being able to reflect that back. And I'm not going to promise that all leaders are going to hear that well, but I think you don't know what you don't know. Like, I don't know what it's like to do full-time admin. However, I've done a lot of it. So I've had to do it. That's what church planters have to do. So most things that my team are doing, I understand pretty well, but there's always things I don't understand. And I always need to be cognizant of what I'm asking them to do that they were like, I didn't really sign up for this. And you didn't really warn us about this. Some of that kind of stuff. So yeah. I think the risk tolerance, and then I think some people mask their anxiety with, this is going to put too much on my plate. And I just want to say, just make sure that it's actually not, it's that like, it, is it really that there's going to be more on your plate or are you just nervous about the long things of, that you just shared? You know, th these questions and whatever, 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 because if it's just that you're anxious and that's hard and you wish it was different, then say that, don't say this is just going to be more work than I want to do or think our team can handle. That's not really true because then leaders don't know whether they can trust that feedback when they're like, wait, so in the end, it's actually just that you're anxious about what will happen. Then, then share that. Cause I, I would want to know that too. I'd want someone to say, Hey, I feel like if we start this thing, people are going to think that we're going to do these other things. And I'm nervous about that. And then I can talk about that with them and say like, okay, and then you might be right. And then we might change our direction or our tactic or how we talk about it. Um, but I would also say that, you know, we cultivating an environment of, of experimenting is super important. So people like me will say that, and that's part of the DNA of my church. And so we don't ever launch programs at Mel City Church. We've never launched a program ever. We will do an experiment and the experiment might be organized such that it becomes a program, but we've never said, we are now launching this thing that we've never done before. And it's going to be a program. Yeah. Um, we're going to try everything from even like, Sunday school class. Like we like a, every church is trying to stop doing adult Sunday school these days because various reasons. Well, we started it because people are like, we need to know, we need to be equipped. So we just called it equipping hour. And I said, all right, we're going to just try this. We're going to try this this fall and see how it goes. And then if it goes well, we'll do it next spring. And then we'll, we're going to 
um, do a survey and see what everybody thinks. And yeah. honestly, you're going to vote with your feet too, because if you're not going to come an hour early, we're not going to keep doing this. So, so yeah. if this is something you want, like come do it. But, but I was not committing to do it forever. Well, we're three years into that and it's pretty organized now. And I would say it's a program <laughs> and, um, but it went well. And it yeah. was like the fourth iteration of adult education that we tried in our little tiny 10 year old church. Yeah. The fourth, because yeah. the other one didn't take. Didn't and so, no, and it was various reasons why. And it, I think in the end of the day, it had to do with timing and childcare and very practical things yeah. and making sure that the classes felt like they hit a felt need for people. But all that to say, now I've got other problems to deal with, you know? Um, and then I would, but I would say that things that you're, you're, you can bring and others can bring is the need for, well, so I just said, there's a need for a, a culture of experimenting, but there's also a need for predictable patterns. And we always mm -hmm. talk about that. Mm -hmm. The level in which people's capacity for the uncertain can happen is, I think, directly correlated with what they can predict. Yeah. Which is different than certainty, but they can predict that. It's like predicting the weather. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I predict that it's going to be below 32 degrees for the next three months <laughs> in Minnesota. <laughs> That's not certain, but it's pretty predictable. So, like, how can you predict stuff, like, have the predictable patterns in the space? So, um, very practically, that's something that people can ask for. Like, well, can I know what to expect? Can I know? So here's a great example. If I say to these folks, hey, we need five people to be on this team for this event that me and my, um, that, and me and my colleague want to launch, are you willing to be on it? What we can commit to is that we're going to have uh, an email chain and we're going to get together every month to keep everybody, you know, aware of what's going on. That's it. That's all I'm committing to them. But the fact that like, okay, so there's a plan for when we're going to meet to talk about the thing that you're ambiguously asking me to participate in. Mm -hmm. And I might say something else like, um, you, can, you can let us know at any time if you feel like they're the, like the level at which you feel like you can actually commit. So in the meeting, if we say, can you do this? You can say yes or no, or yes and. Yeah. So that's like, predictable, like a predictable pattern. Mm -hmm. And when people have those predictable patterns, that can help. Also with experimenting, experiments themselves can have a predictable pattern. So the pattern is, what's the question that we have? What's the thing we're going to try? And then when are we, when exactly are we going to sit down and how are we going to review what that happened? And so that, that informs the next step that we take. That, yeah. That's a very good pattern and that helps people feel. So in my congregation, they know that if I say something's an experiment, there's going to be a time of thoughtfulness when a group of people or anyone can give feedback to say, how did this go? And then that's going to inform the next step. And um, that has really helped people who need that for, for, I mean, it's not a, when I say they need that, I'm like, because they're human beings and many, many human beings, well, all human beings need to know what they can predict to some extent. And right. that's going to help us face uncertainty at whatever level we are created to face it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I cannot stress enough how the wisdom in the experiment. And that's a practice that I had to develop for myself and for the people that I was leading because I was leading a lot of people wired like myself. And that's, again, something really similar that we would do is say, look, this is an experiment, set an arbitrary deadline. It doesn't matter what the deadline is. Do it for a week, do it for three months, do it for a season, you know, do it for a year, do it whatever, it doesn't matter. But so setting that you. arbitrary deadline <laughs> mentally helped me so much even now with this podcast it's a brand new thing i'm you know scared out of my mind about it and but i have to say you know what i'm gonna do it for x amount of time and and i'm gonna assess i'm gonna evaluate i'm gonna review it i'm gonna say have i hit the markers that i wanted to hit is this still working for me and if so, the other thing I have to constantly remind myself is when I, when we do an experiment, if we decide that we're not going to continue after a particular point in time, 
that that's not failure. Uh, the other thing that I think has been so critical for me as a leader is doing that internal work of, you know, really solidifying my identity, knowing who I am, knowing where my worth and value comes from, because the fear for a perfectionist is often the fear of failure. And when I'm not solid in my identity and knowing, you know, whose I am and who I am, that fear of failure can be debilitating. But being mm. able to say, you know, even if we did this experiment for three months and decided not to continue it, that wasn't wasted space. That wasn't wasted time or wasted resources because one, we learned a lot from it. And two, for three months, that impacted somebody. If I do this podcast for one year and then decide, you know what, not going to continue it anymore, for that year, it impacted somebody who listened to it. Well, and, and it's an evergreen thing that can exist beyond its completion. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I think there's just so much wisdom in the, in the experiment mindset. And that's, that's hugely critical. So um, thank you for sharing that. I think you, let me say one more thing about the experiment though. Like yeah. the, you do have to think about what the, what the risk that you're taking in is. Uh -huh. So just like really practically. So if we're going to do this event, if, if we find out that the place we're going to do the event that we want to do it is expensive and it relies on us getting a certain amount of people, then maybe we should think differently about that. Right. Yeah. Like, and, or are we willing to uh, risk that X amount of money if we don't actually end up doing the thing we're planning on? Is that, mm -hmm. are we worth, is it worth it? That's the yeah. kind of thing that I think we really have to think about if we're going to do experiments well and not get attached to the outcomes of them. Right. Um, it, are we willing to see this as something we might not get the return on the investment because investments that that's the idea with an investment it doesn't feel like an experiment because you're like but i'm relying on that roi well yeah. in an experiment at the first stages i don't think that is what you can rely on and now with my equipping hour program at the church like i see the return on the investment i have expectations of the return on the investment because i'm surveying people on what they're learning and if that returns started to go down things would have to change or it might be the beginning of the end you know what i'm saying yeah. so there is to to one more thing to the people like you. Yes, let's actually talk about the things that we're putting at risk here. People's time and energy and finances are mm -hmm. important ones. And so if we're not on board that we're going to give those things, like put those things before us in case it doesn't work out. So if I put a deposit on a, on a location for that event, how sure am I that we're going to even have it? And then how, what is that? Who's on the hook for that? Yeah. Um, and if I personally feel like I can, or my company can, then that's one thing. But, um, you you all need to be able to say to people like me, hey, I, I don't know that I feel like I signed up for risking that. Um, so let's talk about it until we can all agree that we're putting these things out there as a as a volatile risk when it's not yeah. a proven proven investment. Yeah, that's good. That's so good. So much wisdom. And and you kind of you talk about this experiment mindset, um, which that's one of the other things that I wanted to talk with you about today in order to really operate and lead the way that you do is being willing to ask questions, being a question asker. Um, and so I wanted to talk about your book a little bit because that's really, you know, the premise of everything for those that aren't watching right now who are only listening. You're missing this beautiful book cover. But my little Vanna White impersonation right here. I've got my copy of it. Um, we also gave away a couple signed copies in our leadership Christmas prize pack giveaway. So we have some very, very happy people who have the book in their hands. But um, it's titled Stay Curious, How Questions and Doubts Can Save Your Faith. And I think what I love the most about that, I, I preached a sermon recently um, about the very idea of doubt. And so often, you know, we think that doubt and faith are mutually exclusive. And I just don't believe that that's true. And so I love um, what you wrote about um, 
I've read it and I've recommended it to so many, so many different people uh, because I think this is, if there was kind of one common experience that pretty much any human is going to have is in coming to the point where we are questioning things and we're starting to wonder about and establish our own belief system. I was just talking to my kids about this the other day. Um, we were having this whole conversation about our faith during our morning devotions and, you know, they were asking about um, you know, just some people not believe in God. And, and I said, yeah, absolutely. People believe lots of different things. And I said, one day you, you might question your own belief in God. You know, of course they're, they're young, they're nine and seven and three. And, and so they're like, wait, what, why would we do that? I said, well, because you believe what you believe right now, because mommy and daddy are teaching you these things because it's what we believe and what we value. But at some point in life, you're going to start thinking for yourself and you're going to have to question things and you're going to have to wrestle with that. And you're going to have to decide on your own, you know, what you believe leave and what does that mean for you in your life um and so it was just it was funny to me because I, I after having read your book I was just thinking about how even as adults you know it was confusing to my kids like why why would I question that but yeah. even as adults you know we still feel like wait no why would I question can I even question can I doubt and so yeah. I would just love for you to talk a little bit about you know why did you write this what has that journey looked like for you what questions and doubts did you wrestle with and why was it so important for these to be the words that you shared with the world? Yeah. Um, well, the answer to that question of why it's so important is the conversation that you just had with your kids. Like I serve people just like you and many other people who are, serve, are trying to be good parents of adults and you know, how, how do we create a space where this is, um, given like we're spa a space where questions can be asked in a way that allows people to wrestle so that they can grow. I'm just absolutely convinced that a faith that doesn't have the wrestling is not one that's going to grow in its capacity. Um, I mean, I'm an athlete and I just, it's, it's so funny to me how often I forget that the, the but, but it comes back to me all the time. Like our bodies are just like our spiritual and emotional lives. Like there is nothing that makes your body get stronger except for pressure. There's nothing that's going to make you run faster than pushing yourself to the limits you had before. And so if you don't ask questions that push you to expand or um, questions are generative, so they develop more questions and deeper questions, um, you won't get there. Now, asking really good questions inevitably leads to big things that would maybe be under the header of doubt, um, doubting what you've been told before, you know, about anything. And so the fear that people have of doubt and the way that that can lead to a squelching of questions has some pretty significant um, disastrous results, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. I mean, people can talk a lot, and we all are, about what in the U.S. we are starting to call the nuns and the duns, the people who say they're none, they're none on the, you know, religious affiliation, or they're done yeah. with Christianity. There's lots of complex reasons for that, and of course I'm interested in that as a millennial. However, I would say that one of the things that is consistently underrepresented is how people didn't leave because they decided they didn't believe in God at first at least I think they left because there wasn't room for their questions I think that is a big reason and so whether or not everyone can articulate that or that's exactly what they're studying um, but in the research that I did for this book um, one of the most compelling things that I read was that most people most people who go through a time of questions and doubts come back to a faith that they would describe as the same as before or deeper and more meaningful and more vibrant. Now, the other thing that was really compelling in that same study was how vast majority of people feel words like 
afraid or unwilling to share with people in their faith community that they have these questions or doubts. So, so to me, you put that together and it's like, well, so then with the people who don't necessarily have all the answers, but should create safe space for the questions, you know, you see, so then it just adds up. So if you don't feel that if you, if you, if the questions are important and they lead to people who end up coming on the other side with a more meaningful faith, but most people don't feel that the environment that they're in has room for that, then you'd leave that environment. So there's room for those questions so that you can get, so that's, that, that just actually makes sense. And I don't want people to leave that environment, not because of, you know, oh, I don't want people to leave Mill City Church. I mean, sure, I feel sad if somebody decides they don't want to participate in organized religion anymore and they leave my church, which does happen actually a lot. It's probably the number one reason people might leave. And, you know, it's easy for me to be like, oh no. And I take it personally and think about it. Um, but there's a long line in history for all these folks as to what the quote unquote, the church has meant to them and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So my number one goal is not that people stay in church, but that they find the space that has room for those questions because yeah. my deepest hope for everybody is that they have a more vibrant, meaningful faith. And, and I'm sad genuinely personally, when someone's quest leads them to decide that they're not a Christian or that they don't believe in God, that makes me sad. But I'm not afraid of that because I know that the same questions that lead some people to that are the ones that are going to lead to most people having a more vibrant and, and maybe a shift in their understanding of God, yeah. but not a uh, complete disen disengagement from it. It's the people who run from the questions, ignore the questions, fade out of the spaces where they feel like there's no room for their questions and then don't really bring the questions anywhere else. Those are the people I'm actually the most concerned about. Yeah. Because uh, this is the most important question you can ask in your entire life, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Who is God? Who is Jesus? And what does that mean? And there's a lot of answers to that. And I'll respect any answer that people have. I'll probably disagree, but I don't know 100% for certain. It's faith and maybe assurance I might be able to have, but not certainty. That's what faith is, like you were saying. So I, I just feel like, you know, I'm most concerned about the people that are fading out. If someone says I'm, I'm a nun or I'm a done because I decided I'm not religious and I'm done with faith and I decided that and here's why and here's what I did with those questions, I'm going to respect that person and love that person. But I, ha I genuinely have a hard time sitting with someone who's like, you know, I guess I stopped going or stopped doing this or stopped believing. I'm like, you know, indecision is still a decision. I just think for something that's this important, like make a decision, get yourself in a process, do some experiments, which is what I outline in the book, some experiments. Yep. And I am happy to stay in a relationship with someone who decides they're an atheist. I have lots of friends who are atheists, friends who are, are people of faith in other religions. Um, I, think it, I don't think it's a prerequisite to be friends with people that they agree with you. However, if something's meaningful to you, like your faith, like mine is in Jesus, then I want to share it. And so to me, that's what's the purpose of sharing it. Um, but the thing I'm going to be like an evangelist for is not just running away from the question, you know, right. altogether. It was so important. And yeah. Um, even if you decide it's not for you, distinctly decide that that's the most important question you're deciding because it will change the trajectory of your entire life. And yeah. then there's some other big questions like, you know, if you're going to spend your life with somebody and marry them, or if you decide to produce other human beings and other things like that. But I still think the most important question is what you're going to do about God. Yeah. So, and don't run from it. 
what are some of the, because I, I, you know, I feel like, and that is kind of the overarching, like, what am I going to do about God? But for those who have wrestled and struggled with their faith, I feel like we can think, okay, well, some questions are okay, but not the questions that I have, not the struggles that I have. So what are some of the common, just give some examples, and we don't have the answers, obviously, but what are some of the, the questions, just to give examples that you feel like it's okay to ask this, it's okay to wrestle with this and to wonder and to question and to doubt. Well, I think that I personally think that there are no questions that are off limits. I, I think Jesus can handle your questions. Every single question that you have about him, about the world, about yourself, about anything. And the, the hard reality for all of us to face is that if you can trust, that's the word I'll use, trust, not necessarily just believe, but trust, that Jesus can handle your questions. The hard reality is that a lot of people can't. Yeah. Questions yeah. bring up anxiety. They bring up um, concern and worry and a lot of other, sometimes anger, sometimes sadness. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus can handle your anxiety. Jesus isn't anxious about your anxiety. Jesus mm-hmm. isn't sad about your, like can't, is going to like crumble underneath the weight of your sadness. He can just actually physically, emotionally, spiritually be in that with you. We saw him physically do that in the story of his, life on earth so in your sadness jesus is present with you tangibly i think and uh you i i know that's not everyone's experience that's not how they feel but to me that's why the story of who jesus is and who i experienced jesus to be is a being that can handle every single question that you might have but the truth is some of your some people in your life there's no person in your life that can handle them all and so you have to be wise about that and i'm not advocating for churches to say we must be a place where everyone can ask any question out loud because some of those questions would be really hurtful to other people. Yeah. Right. So if somebody comes to me one-on-one and says, I have a question. Can we talk about it one-on-one? And they say, um, this happened to me maybe a few months ago, a gentleman came up and said, I want to talk about the, the phrase white privilege because as a white man, I'm, I just feel like upset about this. I don't understand it. I don't get it. I just feel overwhelmed. And can you talk to me about it? what is it? Is it real? Does it matter? Those are some big questions, you know? And if he asks that question with me, I can handle that. We can talk about it. And we had a great conversation. And I think we came out with mutual understanding of the other. Would that be an appropriate question for him to ask with his hand raised in front of my church membership of which many people of color are participating? No, that would not be appropriate, you know? But it doesn't mean his question isn't valid or doesn't matter. In fact, if he wouldn't have asked it in the right place, he wouldn't have come to the next step that he's in. And I wouldn't have gotten to learn from someone who was unsure of what I meant when I was talking about that. Right. So it, it doesn't mean that every question is appropriate for every space. It definitely means that I think it definitely puts us more towards this. Like, this is why we need a God that can handle this. And I think the fortune we're fortunate to see that God gave us enough of God's story that God can handle it. So That's the tricky part, right? So you can say like, is God real? That's a big question. Can you say like, is God um, gonna send people to hell? You can ask questions about why Why did, I mean, one of the big hangups for me was, why did I watch like some really powerful Christian people like Billy Graham come walking into my dad's hospital room and lay hands on him and do everything the Bible says. And then, you know, he still died two weeks later. Like, why does that, why, why does that happen? I don't know. That's the kind of stuff that I think you got to think about where to ask those. But I just don't think any of them are are off limits. I don't think questions around any of the topics that are the most hot topics of the day are off limits. Um, Whether it's about, um, you know, 
some of the, the hot topics in the United States right now around um, value of life and what forms of life and all that kind of stuff and questions around sexuality. I just don't think any of the questions are off limits. And if people are going to say they are because the Bible says, I'm like, the Bible itself condones an invitation to ask questions, in my opinion. So doesn't mean that there's not things we can take as uh, an, a truth operative. Like we're going to operate out of this truth that we feel assured about, which is different than certain. Um, and I do believe truth is real. I just think for little finite humans to think that we can have all of it is a little silly and arrogant. And so what does it mean to try to operate out of a sense of truth and assurance without having the arrogance of rightness? Like yeah. that's just not getting us anywhere. Yeah. One of the things that you talked about a lot in the book, and because you give a lot of practical advice and a lot of, hey, here's what you can do with this. One of the things that you talk about a lot is a conversation partner. And yeah. um, one of the thoughts that I had is, is how would you advise people to go about, what kind of wisdom would you use to find a good conversation partner? Because one thing that I, the conversation that I feel like I've had a, a lot with people over and over is I had no one. I, I didn't have anyone that I could trust that I could talk to. I was isolated in this experience. You know, I wasn't quite sure who to turn to. So what, how, for someone who wants to ask and wrestle with those questions and they're looking for a safe space, what would you recommend to them? Um, well, very practically, I think for some people, they might need like a spiritual director or yeah. someone like a coach, um, because those spaces have a different type of safety to them because they're not usually going to be a long-term relationship or if they are, they're confined to that space. So like mm -hmm. I've been in relationship with my spiritual director for 11 years, but I am with her in that space pretty much primarily. And, um, that that's distinct. Um, I think sometimes it's a therapist, you know, if the questions are around your family systems and some pretty crazy stuff and why does this person make me feel insane? You know, you know, that that's the conversation part. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think, I think um, there typically there are people in most people's life that they can share that with. Mm -hmm. um, I just find that we're losing our ability to figure out how to, uh, tap into appropriate vulnerability. And that's why everyone likes Brene Brown so much, you know, yeah. but, um, you know, I'll sit with these like grown women and be like, listen, like you, <laughs> you're, where did this relationship go with this woman? Like you guys have been really close. What happened? Well, I don't know. She stopped calling me. And so then, uh, and then I talked to the other person. Cause I'm like, I'm just not here for that. And then she's like, I don't know. She stopped calling me. So I think she probably doesn't. And I'm like, this is so silly. Like you guys, <laughs> like, you know, unless somebody's lying to me about what happened and I don't, you know, if I'm close with them, they're not. I'm like, then someone get the courage to just ask what happened. Worst case scenario, they tell you, I did want to cease our relationship and here's why. And then you can move forward and start healing instead of this ambiguous thing. I think that kind of little micro example that I just gave is way more prevalent than actually not having people that you can talk to. Yeah. To be honest. Um, and I also think, I mean, and I understand someone's going like, you don't understand. I live in this rural part of wherever. And yeah. Also it's 2019 or maybe people listening to this now it's 2020. You can, you can, you can connect with people all over the place. There are so many like there opportunities for having conversations that maybe would be a little safer to start in a room of, of, you know, an online group where people are asking questions around the topic that you're interested in or wondering about, um, take everything with a grain of salt. Everybody else is just another human being. They're another finite human being. Who's not, who for sure is not totally right there's no such thing as a human being that has it all right so enter into that um but i think that people need to learn how to have so i don't know if you have heard this term but when i was growing up in bible college and stuff they called it a dtr or a define the relationship 
talk. Mm -hmm. So you'd have like a DTR to decide like, so what are we doing here? Person at Bible college with me. And uh, that's really cute that we have that romantically. Um, but why are we not having that kind of intentionality around like soul friendships? Hello. Yeah. And, and just talk to people. Like people are like, I prayed for my spouse all this time. Sure. I mean, kind of important. That person's going to be pretty critical, but uh, what's the ramifications of the fact that nobody's been praying about their friendships for this long and making note, like writing down journals about what they'd hope for in like a group of friends who can like covenant to support each other. So I'm just like, you know, if you don't have that, who's going to do that? If it's not you, I've said that to so many people. I've just said, well, if you're not going to start that or encourage that or start that conversation, why do you think anyone else will? And yeah. so um, I know it's risky. I know it's vulnerable. I think of it as like um, Jenga. So if you're playing Jenga and you like tap the bricks and you're, you're tapping them to see which one moves a little bit, um, you know, think of it like that. Like you've got a Jenga tower of relationships. Maybe it's not very high. Some people don't have as many as people like me, maybe because I'm extroverted but tap them around the subject. And if it seems like there's some like, Ooh, I'm interested in that. And like, we pushing it and see if it, and you might be like, okay. And out pops the other side, like a, a conversation partner that you yeah. can actually okay. stuff with. It doesn't mean they need to agree with you or be on the same page, but are they the same level of risk tolerance to have a conversation that feels like it could be. And, and you, and, and, and you know what brings two people together? Things like, I don't feel like we could have this conversation with everyone. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> Totally. And, and so what about for the person that wants to be a safe space for the leader who says, I, I really want to be available, you know, as, as a safe space for people, which obviously means that we first have to deal with our own questions. We have to learn how to ask and how to, to wrestle. And it doesn't mean that we're going to exhaust our list of questions before we can be a safe space, but we have to engage with that process. So for the person listening that says, Oh my gosh, you know, I, I know there are people who have questions and doubts and I don't want to be someone that draws a hard and fast line. I want to be someone that is able to be a safe space. What does it take? What do we have to intentionally engage with in order to, to grow ourselves, to really have the capacity to be a safe space and to be able to have these conversations and allow people to ask questions? How do we as leaders grow into that? Yeah. I mean, it starts and ends with emotional intelligence. So um, if you look even like in emotional intelligence theory 101, you have got to start with self-awareness. Do not walk into a room and go, I wonder what everyone else in here is feeling and how I can understand their emotions and how I can manage this room. You better start with myself. How do I feel? What emotions are coming up in me? What thoughts do I have? How am I in this space? And then you can manage yourself. So step one, self-awareness. Step two, self-management. Then you can start saying like, okay, now these other people or this environment or this team or how we're existing together. And then how can I manage that? And so if I say like I kind of boldly did by writing this book, I can handle like the questions that you have and I want to be someone who can. Um, I have to acknowledge that that doesn't mean I'm not gonna be anxious and I'm gonna to have to check my anxiety and maybe at some point say, I wanna to listen to you, but this is anxious for me for some reasons and so I can't do this and can I help you find someone else? But for the most part, I think I can do that, but I have to check my own anxiety. Like what I'm anxious about when I go into that conversation, when I sit with, a young couple like I did last week and they just were like, we, we have to leave organized religion. And I'm like, why, you know, and they're telling me, and I have to think about like what that's making me feel like it's making me feel, do I feel anxious for them? What am I anxious about then? And do I feel sad? Yeah. Okay. I feel sad. Like I don't want them to, to leave. And do I feel 
um, angry because I feel like they betrayed me in some way. So what's that about? Like, is that there? Oh no, it's not. It's just that, you know, that's what I need to be feeling because, um, to actually be quote unquote safe, I think that's what you have to, to be. Mm-hmm. I'd also encourage any leader. I mean, I think we need, I do need to think we need to tr- figure out how to express it like verbally that we are wanting to be that kind of space, but to do that with humility and say like, I want to do this. I want to try. Um, but then I also think we need to be careful to never, I would never suggest that any space that I lead is safe. There is no such thing. I I cannot, because if I'm leading it, that means there's other people there. And if there's other people there, then it's not safe. So I have said things like, I think I would like Mill City Church to be a brave space where everybody comes with courage and knows that we might hurt each other and Mm. we might need to Matthew 18 that and confront it. Um, And maybe that you might, out of being brave, like it's not maybe a space for you to stay in and different communities right for you. I don't know, but I can't promise you that it's safe. That's I true. can tell you that I will try to be safe as a person. So if that gentleman who wanted to talk about white privilege, can I try to be a safe person for him? Doesn't mean I'm going to tell him everything he wants to hear, but can I be safe and try to treat him as a human and keep him his best interest in mind and ask him good questions? Yeah. But I cannot promise that if there was even one more person sitting at this table. Yeah. I so it is inappropriate to do that. And so as I know that there's a tendency for us who lead churches or nonprofits or any other space of faith to try to push that, that and say that because people have felt so unsafe in other spaces like this. But I think we're, we're in danger of creating a, a you know, double trauma if we try to promise that a space is safe. Yeah. <laughs> like that we, have, we cannot, I have no illusions that I can control over human beings. Um, so I, it's dangerous to, to say, I could say I want Mill City to be a safe place right. and I want it to be a brave space, but boy, that's an idealistic hope that I think at moments is true. Yeah. Um, so that's a big part of it, but it, it all begins and ends with your own emotional intelligence and knowing when you need to tap out and knowing when you need to tap into the reserves of peace and shalom, because, you know, I, at the end of the day, like that couple I was talking to, I'm not, I'm not anxious. Like, they're on their journey. I know about this. I know how it goes. It's not up to me what happens. And so I asked them some good questions and I encouraged them. And I said, can I challenge you a little bit? And they said, yes. And that was good, you know, but if I would have gotten in there all wound up because I, I don't know what I need, like their tithe or something, whatever people, whatever you think's at stake there. But I was like, this is not at stake. There is not anything at stake that's more yeah. significant than their own faith journey right now yeah. and what they think they need to do and the agency that they're trying to have to do it. Mm. That's good. That's good. Gosh, we could talk about this stuff all day um, because it's so critical right now. The, the one last thing, if I can ask you one more question that I want to ask you to speak to, because, you know, we talked a lot about this whole, the questions and, and all of that. Um, but there's this process uh, that you talk about, the deconstructing and reconstructing. And I think understanding that, you know, with all of the questions and all of the doubts and all of the curiosity and with all of the deconstructing, there does come this point of reconstruction. And the example that you used in the book that I loved was the Legos. You talked about the Lego board and the bricks with the students at the college where you teach and um, at the university. And so um, talk a little bit about that. Use With that Lego example, this process of deconstructing and reconstructing and the hope that there is on the other side of being brave enough to ask and wrestle with the questions. Yes. Yeah. So I just, I love Legos personally. <laughs> so they're just fun. Um, but I just think like if you, so the illustration that I use is like, 
your life when you're growing up, similar to the fact that you play Legos when you're a kid. Um, it's like your life is one of those green Lego boards. And this is, this is an illustration that can break down, but just go with it. Like your life's like a Lego board and people are putting pieces on that green thing. And the idea is that you're going to emerge as an 18 year old adult into the world of wherever you do after, after high school or as you step into the workforce or college. And you've got this worldview that you've now built out of these bricks. That's kind of like supposed to be a quote unquote foundation for whatever you're going to learn and grow and do. And um, what happened was it's like, I often, I'll even have people do this. I'll have them like blindfolded and build their Lego tower uh, in like two minutes with just their non-dominant hand. And I'm like, building your worldview from zero to 18 is kind of like building Lego, a Lego tower blindfolded with your non-dominant hand, like quickly. And so you shouldn't expect to come popping out as an 18 year old with a worldview that can really hold everything up. I just think that's normal. And so the process of taking some of those bricks off and going, wait, who even put this one here? Did I put this here? Maybe someone else did. And even if they did, is it supposed to be there or does it help me? And instead of just like out of frustration, like pushing the whole thing off the table saying like, okay, as painful as it is, because I've maybe gotten a little attached to some of these bricks and how they've looked and how this is. I now see that this is not a very sturdy foundation and I need to take some of these bricks off, probably not all of them, but get down to the studs and go, okay, these are like three bricks that can be on here or maybe, maybe for a season they all feel like they're gone. I think that's real. People feel that way. And then I need to say, okay, I can be someone who says that was annoying and frustrating and hurtful and now I'm just going to start to press on and I don't want to deal with this. You can choose that if you want, or you can say, I want to intentionally reconstruct this thing this time with a lot more agency and invitation to people that I'm choosing into that and not allowing them to make the decision what goes on or off, but letting them influence it. And most importantly, like trying to have a conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit to help me do that. And you might have to wrestle with the little brick of the Holy Spirit first. I get that. But once you get there, how do you do that? Now, the other option seems like a realistic one, but it's actually not real. There is no such thing as pushing the Lego board off the table and onto the ground. It will start getting rebuilt again, as though you are left-handed or with your non-dominant hand and blindfolded. If you don't, it's like indecision is still a decision. So it will start to get rebuilt by your environment and what you're doing and your quote unquote God concept and all that stuff. It isn't neutral. It'll start to get rebuilt again. So the decision that people actually have to make is, am I willing to be thoughtful about how I take this thing apart? And then am I willing to be thoughtful about how I put it back together? It's not really an option to not take it apart at all because either it'll like something will break. Um, but and also it's not an option to say, I'm not going to try to put this thing back together. It'll get, it'll get itself put back together. And that's going to put you in a cycle of like having a really unsturdy situation. That's going to not hold a bow out of the, the realities of life and what we go through. Yeah. So, that's, I, like Legos. I talk about it with my college students when I worked in student development and then I'd slip them a little, little, you know, $4 Lego set in their post office box. <laughs> I love it. I love it. There's so much hope in the reconstruction process. Um, well, I just want to say thank you. I know that so much of what you've said has been super critical today. Um, and I want to encourage everybody to go grab their own copy of Stay Curious, obviously. Um, they can find that wherever books are sold. Um, and then tell us real quick about the podcast. Where can they find the Stay Curious podcast? Yeah. So if you go to um, staycuriousmedia.com, you can get to it. Anywhere you get podcasts, you can find this, just put in Stay Curious Podcast. And then all the podcasts that we have under the Lead Stories Media banner is at leadstoriesmedia.com, and you'll see the podcast there. Um, and uh, yeah, that's where you can connect with it. And on Lead Stories, or on 
staycuriousmedia.com. There's a little bit more information and stuff about the book too. So you can read more about it. And then Perfect. my kind of main hub is pastorsteph.com where you can go from that to all the things. And then I'm Pastor Steph on all the things as well. Awesome. And we'll have all that in the show notes. We'll put all the links to you and your social media and lead stories and stay curious and all the different things that you're part of will be in the show notes. So I just want to encourage everybody to, to check that out, especially those of us, which should be all of us that are in the process of wandering and wondering and questioning and wrestling, because that's actually a really, really good place to be and a healthy place to be. So Steph, thank you so, so much for your time and for being here today and for sharing with us. And uh, yeah, we just appreciate it so much. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Table Leadership Podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to the resources that were discussed at the table today and to connect with today's guest. Remember to subscribe to the Table Podcast and follow along on social media at the Table Leadership. Visit thetableleadership.com to learn more about current courses and coaching opportunities. And finally, you can connect with me, your host, at cionedgerton.com or on social media at cionedgerton. I look forward to the next time that you pull up a seat at the table.